0: Hey, if you want to grab a, a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 15, looking at this idea that Jesus said, I am the vine, I am the true vine. Anyone abides in me, I abide in him, and out of that abiding, we bear much fruit. Now, I was talking to somebody earlier, actually after the second ser- first service, and they had a, a bit of a question about this, so I'm going to clarify it for you today, so you're going to walk out of here uh, completely understanding this passage. You're going to get it, okay? So get excited for that. But two questions I want to ask. First of all, here's how I want to lead into this. There's two different paths I think we can take. One is as Christians we can learn to trust God or we can set our energies on pleasing God. Now that may sound like the same thing, but just think about it for a minute. You can set your energy in the Christian life on pleasing God, meaning being pleasing to God in a way that he's going to love you, accept you, work in your life, or you can focus your energies on trusting God. And those two questions, that question, the way that you respond to that is going to lead you in very different directions, and the Christian life you live is going to look very, very different according to how you answer that question. Do you think the Christian life is about pleasing God, gaining God's pleasure, or is it simply about trusting and depending upon him? Because as we get into John 15 and Jesus says, I am the vine, what he teaches in this passage is counter to everything we understand when it comes to growth. The way we think of growth is I start building myself up, start at level one, go to 101 to 201, 301, I build myself up naturally, mechanically, as I add maturity into my life. The Christian life isn't mechanical growth, it's always organic growth. It's not something that I can produce on my own strength. It's something that God has to do through me as I avail myself to his strength. It's not something I can do on my own strength. It's something he has to do through me as I make myself available to the strength that he's already given me. God then wants to do something through me. You know, Christianity is completely different than any other world religion. The world religions say you start with obedience, You start with the laws. You start with the commandments. You start with this climbing the ladder. Christianity says, no, there's no ladder. There's no climbing. Now, there are commandments, but the commandments reflect the kind of person that loves God, not the kind of person that's trying to earn God's love. The commandments are not there to teach you what kind of person God loves, but this is the kind of person the love of God has already fallen on. And Jesus' teaching unpacks the heart or the life that already knows and has experienced the love of God, and this is how it's flowing into their life as they go out walking with God and in his presence. So as we jump into John 15, we're gonna pick up this idea of how does change happen, and then how does that work through our lives, and then what role do we have to play as we tap into him who is called divine? You guys ready for this? It's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. Do you believe that? I hope so. John 15, we're gonna pick it up in verse one. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that, your joy may, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that, I just thank you for that phrase. You're reminding us that what is at stake... Father is that you are pursuing our fullness of joy you want not only for your joy to be in us which is that's a mystery in itself but Father you're asking that through this passage you're teaching us so that our joy might be complete forgive us Father I think we're chasing after joy as an object instead as a result of pursuing you would you teach us, Lord, as we go into your word? Holy Spirit, would you convict us where only you know we need to be convicted? And Lord, with the truth inspire and open our eyes to see, to worship you more, and in that, Father, to know how to walk with you, to live with you, and to allow you to work through us. Father, thank you for this opportunity and chance. In Jesus' name, amen. So I am the vine, and you branches that doesn't sound good we are the branches and if we abide in him as he abides in us we bear much much fruit but apart from me you can do nothing I don't think we believe it I think we think we can do a lot apart from him I mean how much did we pray this week right how much do we get into his work God I can do a lot apart from you how much do we depend on Him, think about Him, allow Him to fill us and guide us? How much of our anxieties come from Jesus? How much of our fears are inspired by abiding in Him? I think the answer is noth- none. None fears, none anxieties. All of that is the fruit of our effort, the fruit of our energies. And He's saying, I want your joy. I want my joy in you, which sounds pretty good, but then I want your joy to be made full, to be made complete. But the only way that's gonna happen is we have to learn what it means to abide in him as he is abiding in us. You know, this language of I am the vine, it's an Old Testament idea, not a New Testament idea. Now, in the Middle East, in the Mediterranean, there's a lot of vines, a lot of wine, a lot of grapes. So it's an image that made a lot of sense to them but it was also an image that was brought from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and it teaches us something about who Jesus is. You see, in the Old Testament, when the vine was used, it was a reference to Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, his covenantal people that God had chosen out of Egypt, brought them into a new land, and set his love and his identity upon them. He had set his love on them, but they were disobedient. They didn't abide, they didn't obey God's commands they didn't follow they didn't listen to him they didn't worship him instead they looked around the nations and said you know Egypt's got it good their God the sun God I'm going to worship that God and when that God didn't fill their hearts and desires they said the Assyrians the Assyrians they got it good And say, their hearts would chase after whatever they saw in the culture, whatever they saw on television, they didn't have television, whatever they heard in the radio, whatever it was, their hearts would constantly run to because, see, they want their joy to be complete. And God said to them, you are an unfruitful vine. Now, when the vine was spoken, when that language was used, it was used in judgment on God's people. It wasn't a popular image. When God said in the Old Testament, you are the vine, it was saying you're the vine, but you're bearing no fruit. You're not connected to me. You're not intimate with me. And what's coming out of your life, listen, don't blame that on me. That's from you. And it's, it's coming out of you because of what you're connecting your heart, your affections, your mind to. And so when Jesus shows up in Israel in the, old, in the New Testament times, and he uses this language, he's taking a negative concept and he's turning it upside down. And he's saying to the Israelites, just as you were unfruitful in the wilderness and in the Old Testament, how you didn't obey God, I'm gonna be your faithfulness. As you were unfruitful, I will be fruitful. And the only way you're gonna produce fruit that changes, that glorifies God, is through me. I will be the strength, the power in you that will change you to produce in you what you could not produce on your own. I'm the only one that can do it. And he's taking this idea that we can't do it. The change he's after, because he tells us apart from me you can do nothing. And in the Greek that means nothing. There's nothing on a spiritual plane that pleases God. And then he says to glorify him, we've got to be connected to him. That in my own strength I cannot bring glory to God unless Jesus is dwelling in me and working through me. And so this image to the Israelites, it was a shocking, surprising image. That Jesus was taking a negative, judgmental idea and he was turning it around because Jesus, if you think about it, pretty fruitful guy. Amazing fruit in the life of Jesus. When it came to relationships, didn't need a lot of help with relationships. He did relationships really, really well. When it came to his own ethics, the way that he lived, the things that he loved, Jesus was an Israelite, he was a Jew, yet he was incredibly fruitful. And what he's telling us is he wants that fruitfulness to dwell in us, and not just to dwell in us, but to work through us. Now, as I said before, the way we think we're gonna change is by, ready, just try harder. Come on, church, try harder, do more, Get up earlier, read more, study more. All those things are good. You know what he's saying to that, Jesus saying? That's not gonna change you. The change that God is after, the change that glorifies him is something he has to do within us, but we have to make ourselves available to do. We are incapable of changing on our own. So jump back down in verse two, and he picks it up and he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And here's good news. In every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That doesn't sound good. To be pruned is to be disciplined, to be cut. That God takes the fruitful ones, those that are fruitful, those that are producing fruit for God, and he wounds us at times. He cuts us. He prunes us. Why? You ready for this? Because he loves you. You know, the gardener doesn't cut the plants, doesn't prune the plants he doesn't love. You know why? They're already dead. When it's using this language of throwing in the fire, that's not just a metaphor of judgment, it's what they literally did. They didn't have trash men to come by and pick up your stuff. So you had to get rid of it. And he's saying everything that's not abiding in me I don't prune because it's dead. But for those that are alive, those to whom no God and God is dwelling in them, he works in their life to prune them. And pruning often means discipline. You know, James in James chapter 1 said, Consider it joy when you go through trials. Jesus would say, Consider joy when you go through trials because you're being pruned. And in those moments, you've got to ask the question in my trials, in my suffering, in my difficulty, am I trying to please God or am I just trying to trust God? Am I trying to prove to God that I'm worthy to be loved or am I trusting that God's love and his strength in this moment are enough? Those are very different directions. Because God prunes those he loves, those that belong to him, he prunes. And then notice as you jump down, actually, hold on, I don't want to go there yet. Actually, I want to go look at 1 Corinthians 13. Because as we talk about fruit, we have to understand the kind of fruit God's after. And the truth is, in the New Testament, there's a lot of counterfeit fruit. And often the fruit, the change that is exhibited in our lives as Christians is not the change necessarily that comes from God, it's the change that comes from me. And sometimes the change in our life is the change that comes from me, because guess what, who it glorifies? It glorifies some me. And it benefits me. The change that God is after is not the stuff that you may think is as important as he thinks it is. You see, why? Because it glorifies him, it draws attention to him. See, I want to change in the ways that help me. God fixed me some ways that are gonna benefit my life and benefit my career and benefit my marriage and benefit all these things, but he wants to change us in a way that draws us to glorify him, which means I gotta get my hands off the reins of change and allow him to work in my life. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 says that, says all of that. Now, usually we hear that at a wedding, right? Love is patient. Isn't that nice? Love is kind. It does not envy. This is your marriage. I'm just describing it for you. It doesn't boast. I'm sure all of us do. We keep no record of wrongs. That's our house, right? No record of wrongs. Never. Now just forget that stuff. Absolutely, right? But at the beginning of that, what he's describing is the kind of life that produces that love. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, it says it this way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Now, why symbols? What's he describing? That's pagan worship. When you went to the temple, you made a lot of noise to wake up the gods. I'm, I'm here. Bless me. Speak to me. You would offer a sacrifice. You would cut yourself. You'd do something to say, gods, give me the attention. See, that's trying to please God, not trust God. The pagans had to please the gods. They had to appease the gods. He's saying we don't approach God on the basis of what we can do for him. We approach God on the basis of love and the love he has given alone. Now what's that look like? How does it play out in your life? Well notice, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have a faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, notice the language, I am nothing. What is he saying? When I'm producing, when I'm... um, Doing things for God, am I doing it out of a motivation of love for God or am I doing it to become someone? See, often in the world we do things to become someone. Well, we also do our religion that way. We do our obedience to become someone. Not motivated by God's love, but motivated by what I can get based on how other people see me. And notice the stuff this guy's doing. This is, I'd want this pastor fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. He's got the leadership gift that can move or remove mountains. That's a leadership gift. This is someone that's accomplishing amazing things for God. And yet he says to that person, because you're not motivated by love for me, in my presence, apart from me, you can do nothing. But Jesus, didn't we cast out demons? Hey, Jesus, didn't we feed the poor? But I never knew you. Was the motivation a relationship? Was it my love that motivated you? No, what what he's saying is it's possible to do those things to become someone. Or look at the second half of that. He says in verse three, if I give away all I have, so this is incredible generosity, martyrdom, if I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, notice the language, I gain nothing. Meaning that all your generosity, all your self-sacrifice was to get something from God. What's the gospel? The gospel is because of Jesus, I already am a child of God and I already have everything I need for life and godliness. God has given me everything in Jesus Christ. Now take that language and go back to the metaphor of I am the vine. What's he saying? You already are someone in Christ. You already have everything in Christ. What God wants to do is now to work through you what he's already worked in you which is the life of Christ, to abide, to rest, to trust, to trust that his work is sufficient and it's complete. So in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, we see what this fruit looks like that he wants to produce through us. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. There's no laws against kindness You don't have to set up laws against self-sacrifice. There's no laws against it. Now, what's he describing? This is what someone who abides in Jesus looks like. Now, they look a lot like us, but the challenge we have when we think of the growth God wants, you know, we celebrate growth that really isn't from God. Now, let me explain that. When it says the fruit of the Spirit, it's the fruit, singular. Meaning all of these things grow in unison with one another. So in my areas of weakness, when I look at that list, that's my area of strength. That's how well I'm doing. If love is a challenge, if patience is a challenge, if gentleness is, because listen, you can't be peaceful if you're not loving. You can't be kind if you're not generous. All of them work together. Now what we tend to do in churches is we tend to hang fruit on dead trees we hang us some love and we build up some love not because it's coming from the love of god it's because it benefits me i'm gaining something i'm becoming someone i'm gaining something from others or others are seeing me in a certain light and that's giving me a reputation and that's feeding myself which is the same reason why we do the wrong things think about how messed up religion is religion often gives you a motivation that comes out of the same reason that we sin why do we sin Because we love us. Why do we obey? Because we love us. Jesus saying, don't blame that on me. That's from you. The change that God is after is a fundamental change of motivation. Why am I doing what I do? When it's for the glory of God and when it's set on God, it comes out in our life that love, joy, peace, patient, kindness, it grows together. It grows in unison. Because here's the reality. In this room, there is, some of you are really patient. But it's the patience of DNA, not the patience of Jesus. Your mother was patient, your grandmother was patient, her great-grandmother was patient, and that patience has passed on to you, and it can look like a fruit of the Spirit, but it's really just, to be honest, it's a fruit of the flesh. It's a good thing to have in society, patient people, but that's not coming from Jesus. Because all of us could take two or three of these areas, and because of our upbringing, our experiences, we look very fruitful but what God is after is the growth of that fruit working in tandem with one another, flowing out of us. That's the life that he's after. Now, how does that, how does that work? How does that happen? Well, if we jump back into the passage and we look down, actually, in verse 3, I want to show you a shift that's happening. Because often when we fail, I think we take that failure, and certainly in the Christian life, I think there's this mentality that if I work on my sin well enough, I'll have an intimate relationship with God hear me on this, I'll work on my sin enough to have an intimate relationship with God and that's the spirit of Christianity often the church is walking in. If I could just clean up my sin, then I'll, I'll really begin to know God. That's not how Christianity works. Christianity works on the opposite. The reason I work on my sin is because I know and I've experienced the love of God. And it results in a completely different life. So watch this. In verse three, what's about to happen is we're 24 to 48 hours. I think 24 from the arrest of Jesus, 48 from the death of Jesus. They're about to betray him. They're about to disown him. They're gonna walk away from him. They're gonna want nothing to do with Jesus, yet look at how they're described in verse three. These are the disciples. He says in verse three, and he looked at them. He, He saw them. They were standing there, and already he says, you are clean, Because of the word I've spoken to you. Because he just said, I've got to prune some of you, but I want you to understand. From God's perspective, you're clean. Now why? Because you trust me. Remember how I asked, are we trying to please him or trust him? What cleanses us? Trusting him. Trusting that who he says I am, I am. The problem is I don't believe him. That's why I'm trying so hard. That's why I'm tired. That's why I'm anxious. I'm not learning to listen to his voice, to be still in his presence, to allow the word of God through the spirit of God to minister to me. I'm trying to produce fruit that only God can produce out of my strength. You're gonna be tired. And let me tell you as a pastor, I walk that line all the time. So often God just has to say to me, Jason, will you stop trying to be the savior? I came to earth so you can get off the throne and just allow me to work through you, which means rest. This idea of abiding is the idea that we need to rest in who we are in Christ and what God has done, and not just to simply put energy into how we can produce what only God can do through us. And he says, he says here, you're clean, and you're not clean because of what you've done, you're clean because of the words that you believed. You trusted me, and I have come in, and I've done something new in your life. And so pick it up in verse 4, abide in me. Here's the result, because you're clean, abide in me and I in you. Because as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you're the branches who abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burn. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be, it will be given to you. I don't know if you have this experience, but there are times where I think it's wise to run from God. Maybe I'm the only one up here that can say that, but there are times in my life where I think my disobedience, my life, precludes me from drawing close to God. And so I avoid the church, right? I'm sure no one ever has ever done that. You know, avoid spiritual conversations. Avoid prayer. Avoid getting in the word. Because fundamentally, deep down inside, we know we're sinful, and we think we've got to do something about it. I've got to make myself clean. And if I could just make myself clean, then God's going to love me. And you know what we do? We avoid everything that would make us clean. And we put everything on us, and it just burdens and crushes us. And he's saying to us, and you've got to receive this, you're already clean, you're already accepted, you're already washed because of what I have done. Now, I want you to walk in that. See, what does it mean to walk and to live knowing that God completely accepts us? And right now, No matter what you did last night, he is pleased with you because of Jesus. His pleasure in your life has nothing to do with your obedience. It has everything to do with Jesus' obedience. Now, your ability to experience his pleasure is very much based on your obedience. When you're not obedient and you're just ignoring what he has said, you're not gonna sense, you're not gonna know, you're not gonna experience the presence of God. But when he looks at you, he sees you as his child. And his pleasure... Just like every good parent, our pleasure in our kids is based on the fact that they belong to us. If your pleasure in your kid's life is based on whether they obey you, (laughs) that kid's going to feel miserable. Because no child should have his identity anchored down in their ability to obey their parents. No, we love our children because they're our children and they belong to us. And because of what Jesus has done, we are fully and completely the children of God, cleansed and redeemed in Christ. And so the reason we do good fruit is not to prove ourselves to God, not to to gain something, but simply out of the gratitude for what God has done. Have you heard that? That's the good news of the gospel. We're not trying to gain anything, and we're not trying to prove anything. We're obedient because we've already gained all things, and Jesus has proven enough which means you can be you in God's presence. But again, the challenge is we think we gotta fix it. And so imagine this. Here's the story of Peter. Think about Peter's story. You know, Peter in this time, the disciples, they're just 24 hours from denying Jesus. And actually, there's a moment where Jesus is gonna say to Peter, you know, Peter, before the alarm clock goes off, before you get up in the morning, you're gonna deny me three times. And what does Peter say? Nuh-uh, not me. Not me, Jesus. I'm gonna do this thing. I'm gonna do it right I would never deny you. And he even said, all these guys right here, you see these guys, Jesus? That guy's going to, Thomas, you know Thomas, he's a doubting, he's always doubting you. I told you that. He's going to deny not me. I'm going to stick to the end. What happens? Two hours, right? Two hours later. Two hours later. Okay, so these folks come in, The soldiers come in, and they want to arrest Jesus. Well, Peter's saying, okay, this is my time to step up. I'm going to step up. He pulls out his sword, cuts off one of the servant's ears, and Jesus says, hey, that's not how my kingdom does things. That's just moving chairs on the Titanic, Peter. Power is not going to change the world. Self-sacrifice will change the world. What did he do? He healed that man's ear, and Peter's kind of mystified. He's like, what? I thought we were going to take over. I thought we were going to rule this thing. Not like that. And then there's a story, and you'll find this in the Gospel of Mark. There was this, this man that was lurking in the shadows because after that, after Jesus was arrested, everybody bolted. It didn't look good. I mean, your, your man, your guy is arrested and being beaten. You want to get out of there. And there's a story of one man who was kind of lurking in the shadows, and the idea from the Gospel of Mark is that it was probably Peter. And Peter was lurking in the shadows because he told Jesus, hey, I'm not going to betray you. I'm just going to hide. I'm going to hide up behind a bush, but I won't betray you. I won't walk away from you. And eventually a soldier saw him grabbed his cloak, and the man ran away naked. It's there. you got to read your Bible. It's there. He runs away naked because he would not abandon Jesus. And then he's still still hovering around, even after that experience. I guess he found some other clothes, and he went back to the temple. He went back to where Jesus was, and he's in the inner court. And this servant girl, I imagine she's 12, right? She says, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? Peter looks at her and says, not me. I don't know that guy. I'm just here for the show. I want to see what's happening. And so she goes away. She comes back and says, surely you're one of his disciples. Woman, I don't know the man. And the third time she comes back, you're a Galilean. I hear it in your accent. You're one of his disciples. And it says in scriptures that he cursed Jesus, cursed the existence of Jesus. And it's in that moment, the alarm clock rings. Peter looks eye to eye with Jesus, and it says he wept bitterly. Now, if you fail God like that, wouldn't you run from him? That's my inclination. God, you can't, you can't be around me. Look, I really messed up. You know, when you get back to John 21, there's this story. It's amazing. Right after Jesus had resurrected, you know, all the disciples, they went back to their jobs because that's what they knew. So he, Peter went back to fishing. And in John 21, Peter's there, and he's in his boat. He's fishing. He's, he's out in the water, and Jesus shows up. You know, if you had abandoned Jesus, if you had cursed Jesus to his face, when Jesus shows up, don't you think you'd run? But see, Peter understood why he was clean. And when Jesus showed up and he was in the boat, that boy jumped into the water and swam to Jesus and bowed down before him and worshiped him. And you think, how could you do that? You betrayed him. You rejected him. But see, Peter understood why he was accepted. Jesus had made him clean and the only thing that was going to change Peter's life was having more of Jesus in his life. Because as we jump down, and we've got to kind of wrap it up as you jump down to the passage, what he goes on to describe is the power of love. That the degree to which God loves you is the degree to which the Father loves Jesus. Are you hanging your day on that when you get up on Monday morning? You're going to Fox News, that's not going to help you. You're going to CNN, you're going to Washington Times. Listen, we need to know some of that information, but it's not going to help you. What does he get down and he says, this is what you need to anchor yourself in. I love you as the Father loved me, so I love you. You know what you need to do right there? It's called repent. Every morning, because we don't believe it. Even on the best day, we don't believe it, I'm telling you. We gotta say, Father, I'm struggling to believe that. Help my unbelief. You know what God's gonna do? He's going to be glorified in that prayer. He's going to be glorified, and he's going to desire to pour his love out in your life. Because that's the degree to which God loves us, to the same degree that he loves Jesus. Now, why does he love us? Now, as you jump down, it, it says, If you obey my commands, you will abide in my love. Now, the wrong idea of that is that God only loves me if I obey. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the reason you obey, ready for this? The degree to which you obey is solely based in the degree to which you've experienced the love of God. Because nobody would obey the commands that Jesus called us to obey unless they'd experienced the love of God. Why would you give away your income? Why would you serve those who want nothing to do with you? Why would you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Why would you seek the best interest of others instead of seeking your own best interest? The only answer is if you've experienced God doing that for you. The only explanation for the fruit of the Spirit is the gospel. It's the life of Jesus Christ. That in Jesus, he laid down his life while we're yet sinners, which means the church should be a counterculture that we don't love people because we gain anything or we become something. And that's the way of the world, and we have, been, we have walked that path and probably been used in those ways so many times that we need to say, God, I forgive me. I'm not gonna use what you have done to gain something for myself because Jesus, who had it all, who was in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he gave it up he became a man, and not just any man, a man who was a servant, and not just a servant in a king's house, but rather one who was willing to die on a cross so that you and I might know the depths of the love of God. The first thing we need to do is to believe, and out of that belief will come a life that glorifies God. But hey, to walk in that, you know what we need to do is just admit, God, I'm not walking in it. And, and in part this week, here's what I want to challenge you you need to learn in your own life what stirs your affections for God. I'll tell you, it, it needs to include the word and it needs to include prayer and it needs to include community outside of that. You can do it however you want. You know, the thing that's worked for me in my life, the place that God became intimate to me is I started memorizing entire books of the Bible. And was it's crazy, doesn't make any sense, but that's what I started doing. And I didn't do that because I'm easy at memorizing. I'm dyslexic and reading is such a challenge. But David said, if I hid your word in my heart, I wouldn't sin against you. And Jesus, when I saw Jesus going to the cross, when he was going through difficult times, the word of God came out of him. And when you hide the word of God in in your heart, and I'm not talking about a verse, I'm talking about an argument. That's what the Bible is and you're allowing that to saturate your heart and your soul, God becomes alive. And there's this moment in my prayer time where I turn, I'm like, you're here. He's like, yeah, I've been here the whole time. I'm just waiting for you to realize it. I'm waiting for the distractions of your life to simmer down to the point that you're willing just simply to abide with me. We have got to be a people that learn how that works. And here's one thing for us today, I think, just quickly. Solitude and silence. Steve and I were talking this week. He kind of created some silence for us, and I said, It's probably going to make some people uncomfortable. We want to fill the gap with noise. God wants us to be still. How much are we cultivating those disciplines that allow us just simply to savor and to taste that God is good? And we need to do that individually, but also, you know what you need to learn to do is you need to learn to do that with others, because that's when you really start to realize you're accepted when you can conf- confess to another human being and they, they say, hey, listen, God forgives you, God loves you, and I'm gonna help you. It's in the body of Christ that the true manifestation of the presence of Christ is possible, Are you with me on that? Hey, as we enter this week, it's called the Holy Week, as we come to Good Friday, here's a challenge I wanna throw at you. One, come to the Seder, it's gonna be a fantastic gathering, but, but when the sun goes down on, on Friday night, if you have never fasted, you've never given something up, I wanna encourage you, when that sun goes down Friday night, just to give something up. Now, if you can't go without food, it doesn't have to be food. But would you turn something off from Friday night until the sun rises on Sunday morning? And in that time, the goal of that is simply to say, Father, show me the hope, show me the truth and the love that I have in Jesus Christ. And if you need someplace to anchor yourself, John 14, 15, 16, 17. It's the best place to anchor your heart this week in preparation for what God has done in Christ Jesus. You with me? What can you turn off? Because there's something right now in your life that is keeping you from abiding, abiding with God in such a way that your joy is complete. And I don't want want you to stay away from that. That's something God has died for, and we want to rest in. You with me? Hey, let me close. Let me close. Let me pray for us. Father, you tell us if we would just walk in the light. I love that. Father, I thank you that you don't tell me if I would just change my life, if I would just get my act together. My coach told me that all the time. My father told me that, but my heavenly father has told me just walk in the light as you are in the light. The blood of Jesus, your son, Father, has purified us from all sins. But dear children, if we find that we have sinned, don't run from him. You have an advocate with the Father. You have an advocate before the Father that defends us day and night. Lord, so we boldly now come before a throne of grace, approaching you solely through Christ and Christ alone, knowing that you're our Father, that you have died, Lord Jesus, for us so that we might be declared clean. But Lord, I want to ask, Father, I want to ask that we would trust you in that and not trust you just, just in every aspect of life, but in the area of life we don't want you to touch right now. The area of life where we do not want your love to invade because we know it's gonna change us and it's gonna heal us. Father, would you allow the light of your presence to the glory of Jesus Christ to convict us in the areas that we need to be convicted and Father, would we this week say, Father, I thank you that I'm accepted because of Christ and Christ alone. I come before you pleading nothing else no symbols I want to bang and no gongs but I am already something in Christ I have gained all things Lord I just want to be with you and would that begin father to change all the stuff that we have spent years trying to change would that begin to move the needle in our lives father thank you for that truth and thank you for your love in Jesus name amen you guys can stand with me we're gonna sing an old old but good one I love this Saying, I used to sing this in the mountains of North Carolina, Balsam Grove. You don't know nothing.